for podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. And today I'm here collaborating with Mayo Clinic Center for Health Equity and Community Engagement Research. And it's October, October 13. Time is flying. It's almost the end of the Spanish Hispanic Heritage Month that runs from September 15th to October 15th. And the weather keeps changing fast. Today is raining here in Rochester, Minnesota. I hope the weather is better from your location, wherever in the world you're listening to us. I just want to say hi to our listeners. I was checking the data in our podcast. We've got listeners from Germany and Australia this week. Hello to everybody. And today I have a, a couple of guests that I would like to introduce you. First one is Susan Malkeroy. Susan, welcome to the Community Board Podcast. How you doing? I'm really good, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Susan, tell us a little bit about the institution that you work with. Okay, um, I work at the Linder Center of Hope, which is a private psychiatric center that's affiliated with the University of Cincinnati. It's been operating about 12, 13 years, and I've been there the whole time, and I run the research program there. Are you in the Cincinnati, so, Cincinnati area? It's Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. Okay. And how's the weather down there? <laughs> weather? It's actually, right now, it's gorgeous. Okay. All right. It's really, really nice. Um, That's it'll good. probably turn really bad in a few days. <laughs> I know. You know, we also have here Dr. Mark Fryer from Mayo Clinic. Welcome, doctor. Hey, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Um, really excited to be joining uh, this conversation with you and Sue. And you're located in Minnesota, right? Yes, I am at the Mayo Clinic, which is in Rochester, Minnesota, and we are having a rainy autumn day, um, <laughs> but we need the water, so that's good. Uh, but uh, Rochester is a community of about 120,000, um, and it's located in the southeastern part of the state, and I've been working at Mayo Clinic uh, since 2007. Doctor, which department do you work with? So I'm a psychiatrist, um, okay. like Sue, and, and I'm in the Department of Psychiatry here at Mayo. Our, our work specifically is in the Mayo Clinic Depression Center. And so that's where patients who are struggling with depression, uh, manic depressive illness, or bipolar disorder would be, um, would be seen. That's, that's um, my clinical area of, of interest and uh, expertise. Okay. Thank you. And welcome. Hey, I have a question for you too. How do you guys deal with changes in your life? For example, right now we're experiencing, at least here in the upper Midwest, with the weather change. And, and as you start building that anxiety of because you know what is coming, how do you guys deal with change in your life? And, does, and is it normal to experience some anxiety when, when you're dealing with change in our lives? I, I think so. I, I think, didn't we all hear from our parents that change is constant? It will always happen. And 
part of the, the, the goal is to embrace the change and try to um, learn from transitions and experiences. Sometimes those can be challenging. Sometimes they're very welcomed, but I think change seasons or chapters in our lives will, will always be there, right? Mm-hmm. What about you, um, Susan? Uh, change is con- constant. Change is normal. Change is often hard to deal with, even if you're going from something bad to good, as well as if you go from good to bad. So um, we all have to work on. So I, I actually think it's important to educate young children about how change is completely normal and how you respond to change and that res- and to and to have a healthy response to change means you have some flexibility um resilience um you know it's like hey this is the way it goes you know change is normal and i need to do my best to um respond to it as that i can yeah as as a parent uh especially during this past school year in in the beginning of this school year uh we've been trying to adapt constantly with the changes that happened in school because uh you know kids my older kid wanted to ride the bus and we're like oh sweetie i don't know if this is a good idea but she's like you said, in constant, constant change, it was a new school. She's growing up, going to middle school. Now she wants to ride the bus. And, and you know, it's one of those things that we need to decide. And then uh, the mass situation mandates a school or somebody has a positive case of COVID school. And then kids have to go back to home for 10 days. And then me as a parent working at home, I'm fortunate to work at home, but you know, you have to adapt. And, and, and like you mentioned, for good things and bad things, uh, do you guys have any techniques that you can suggest for our friends uh, when they're dealing with change? Uh, let's say knowing in the positive side of change. How, how can we uh, face those sometimes no positive changes in our lives? You know, I, I would say, I mean, I, I think Sue's point is a, is a good one. And and I guess I would just say, let's state the obvious. Um, The pandemic has completely um, disrupted our lives and we need to adapt, go with the flow. And we need to find ways to um, keep moving and learn new things and adapt and take um, celebration and successful adaptation and things we've learned along the way. But no question, your daughter's example um, is everywhere in the world, right? I think, Suze, I think people underestimate how stressful positive change can be. I think we all kind of would, you know, kind of, it makes sense that if there's a, a loss of a loved one or a significant, uh, you know, death in the family, that's a negative stressor and, and we understand how that can be so difficult. I think sometimes we underestimate the challenges of really positive stress. At the end of the day, stress is stress. It doesn't matter if it's positive or negative. 
but a job promotion or a marriage, um, really positive life events are changed as well. And I, I think it's important to, to recognize them, approach it head on. Don't try to, don't try to deny that the change is, is happening. It's there. Look at it head on, work through it, support with friends and family, learn from the experience. You're stronger because of it. Thank you. And, and in, in your field, you work in psychiatry. Can you just give me a, a quick definition for our listeners? What is the definition of psychiatry? What do you, uh, when you work with patients, what are the things that they're dealing with? Well, uh, let me, I'll start, Mark, and you can add. Um, so we know there are a number of different types of mental health professionals, and they're all crucial. And they all have slight, they have overlapping, but somewhat different roles to play. So we have psychologists who are experts in doing psychotherapy, including all these different fancy types of psychotherapy. We have social workers who can do psychotherapy, but also can help um, manage somebody's um, family situation. And then there's us psychiatrists and we're MDs and um, we're, we're educated on all the types of psychological problems and psychotherapies that exist, but another huge part of our job is to, you know, mental illness is sometimes a medical illness. Um, many times people will respond to psychotherapy or counseling alone, but other times they need medicine. Um, they are, I mean, they need medicine often with psychotherapy, but so that's when, that's when us psychiatrists come in, when somebody needs to have a medication. And um, uh, this will be my last comment, and then Dr. Fry can take over. Um, I, I, what, I don't think what people realize is that psychiatry, we have just as good treatment responses with our medicines that cardiology does, you know, that oncology does. We actually do, you know, we can't, at this point, we cannot cure severe mental illness, but we can, between um, medical and psychological strategies, we can often um, get very nice responses. So, perfect. Thank you. Take that it away, Mark. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't add to that. I, I would just underscore again in our current pandemic. You can appreciate, Miguel, that mental health concerns, even if it's just trying to say, am I keeping, a, can I keep going with the flow? Am I adapting? Am I changing? You know, that's someone who is successfully adapting, but that's stress in and of itself. And obviously, I think probably more related to some of the economic impact of pandemic, we see more depression, more anxiety, uh, more addiction. And, and those are areas, as Sue was saying, that social workers, therapists, psychologists bring a very unique skill set and can be quite helpful for managing some of those symptoms and really having people feel better. Uh, the psychiatrist who's 
gone to medical school and then had subspecialty training in psychiatry, mental health, really brings that medicinal component. And, and I would add both from the standpoint of sometimes people get really depressed after having a heart attack. And there's a biology to that, that we need to better understand, or they get really depressed after having a stroke and our medicines can be immensely helpful for those symptoms. Would agree with Sue. Um, I'd say most of my job working alongside the psychologists and, and the social workers therapists is to provide uh, a, a diagnostic uh, comprehensive assessment, which sometimes can be challenging, but then really working with medicines to get people feeling better. Um, and once they're feeling better, working with those medicines to have them stay well. Uh, before our, our conversation, I was reading some materials on this topic and, um, and maybe you guys can share what are some of those um, main symptoms or, or the way that people start acting or, or stop doing things that they used to like to do either at work or with family members. What are those, some of those things they, they might, uh, I'm trying to find the word, uh, they might tell you that somebody's dealing with some mental health issues or struggling with some mental right. health. I'll start. You can follow up, Mark. Okay. The thing about mental illness um, is that it's medical illness. And this, this dichotomy between, you know, psychiatric illness isn't a medical illness. I, um, the, the evidence is mounting every day that that's a false dichotomy. Um, mental illness. I mean, we, we all have... We all have depression, we all have anxiety, we all have to deal with stress, we all have maybe have transient sleep disturbances. Um, that's very different from these symptoms persisting. So what suggests that somebody has a major mental illness versus, you know, it's just life happening to them? So it's not just like, so, you know, changes in mood, energy, uh, but, but I'd, like to, I'd like to focus on what we call the vegetative symptoms. Um, so when somebody has profound changes in sleep, because sleep is, we all know sleep is so important for health, but if somebody is sleeping, they can't fall asleep, they can't stay asleep, they're sleeping too much. We know that there's a very good chance that that may be indicative that there's a mental disorder. Same for changes in appetite. If somebody starts eating less and they lose weight, and conversely, they start eating more and gain weight, that suggests that there's a mental disorder. Again, it's the, it's not the court, it's not the higher levels of the brain that control these functions. It's like, you know, the lower, like the hypothalamus and the lower levels. So when people's sleep and appetite and energy are off, then you really need to think about a major mental illness. Mark, take it from here.
Sue's giving me the easy job, Miguel. I get to follow <laughs> up on all of her really helpful comments. I, I think it's the hard job. <laughs> so you got to talk I, about the nuances. No, no, we're all all good. What I like about so number one, I would agree with Sue. And when I think about my work every day, those are symptoms I really key into. And I think what makes this so interesting and so um, worthwhile and inspiring work is if, if we just take depression, for example. So when people get really depressed, as Sue was highlighting, there's going to be a sleep disturbance, a weight disturbance. Loved ones, family members might be aware of those changes, but they're going to see a change in that person during the course of their day. They're not laughing the same way they used to. They're not they're, they're actively avoiding social situations because they don't want to be there. Their work is functionally impaired. So there are a series of symptoms that we look for um, to I, make I read, I read too, doctor, and that was something that catched my attention. There is the dimension that usually people lose interest in things they're, they like hobbies, things yeah. that they were passionate about it, and then the family members start noticing, like, oh, Uncle Joe is not working on his car that he always, you know, on his tools and exactly little things exactly. like that. And, you know, Miguel, you're bringing up another important point that our jobs, our ability to do good work really relies on those family members, friends, loved ones who can make those observations that you just brought up. What I like about Sue's thought about really focusing on sleep and appetite is sometimes the other symptoms can be quite variable. And sometimes people would actually be depressed without even endorsing depressed mood. What, what do I mean by that? So, and again, that's where we really focus on sleep and appetite. But we know, for example, that men, men very often will not per se endorse, I feel depressed but they will absolutely key in to loss of hobbies. They might be more recognizing greater irritability or low back pain, but not really key into this idea of depressed mood per se. And there are lots of different um, groups where you can see different profiles like that, but we call it and we treat it the same at the end of the day. But Miguel, the so depression, so... Mark's comments bring me to the notion that depression is not a good term for the illness that we're talking about. Depre depressed mood can be a symptom. Depressed mood can be totally normal. It can, it can just be, you know, normal. If you've lost a loved one, you know, you're going to be depressed. Um, so it's depression. I, I don't like the term depression. Um, because it's the the illness of depression is so much more than just having a depressed or low mood. Like you said, low motivation. You don't want to get out of bed. People don't want to go out of work. Their energy is low. Their sleeping is disrupted. Their appetite and weight are disrupted. Their thinking is disrupted. They can't concentrate. They can't focus. So... We use the term depression, you know, to describe normal, a, a normal mood, 
you know, to the to describe a mood after we've had a major loss, but we use it for this illness, and it it's not a we we need to come up with a new term because uh, depression, the illness of depression, is so much more than just a depressed mood. I was saying thank you for sharing. Um, other uh, term that I was learning and also that I know that you guys work in this field, in this area of uh, mental health, which is bipolar disorder. Can you guys give me share with, with our audience? Uh, what, is, what would it be a definition or description of bipolar disorder? So I can start and we'll have Sue okay. uh, pick up. So if we think about... Um, that depression we were just talking about, sleep disturbance and appetite disturbance, the loss of joy and lots of other symptoms that go with that. Once we establish that is going on, the next, the next job is to really confirm, is this someone where we look at their, their longitudinal course of illness and we can see that these episodes of depression come and go. It's rare to have one single episode of depression. If we see depression coming and going, we will use the term major depressive disorder. But the, the next step that we have to do is to figure out besides depression, for that individual, are there times when their mood is unusually elevated? And just like Sue was talking about, a sleep disturbance, an appetite disturbance, but now the mood is exhilarating or euphoric or really, really, really agitated. What we're looking for are signs and symptoms of what we call mania. And if someone has mania and depression, then we use the term bipolar disorder. If someone has just depression, we use the term major depressive disorder. But I would say, Miguel, in my job here at the Mayo Clinic Depression Center, probably the most important piece that we have to do is this one. Is this someone that has depression that comes and goes? Or is this someone that has manic episodes that come and go, depressive episodes that come and go, milder episodes of mania that we call hypomania. This difference is critical because the treatments, the, the, the medicinal treatments that we have are fundamentally different. So I would, I would argue um, really one of the most important pieces from a diagnostic standpoint. Would you agree, Sue? I agree completely. Um, and to just sort of hammer home this issue, I'm just going to try to say the same thing in different words. Um, okay, so depression. There's, you know, it can range from something that's normal to something that's an illness. Okay, if 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 somebody has depression uh, that we think is due to major depressive disorder, you know, an illness, a psychiatric illness. Um, that's not really hard to figure out. What is hard to figure out is, is the depression due to what we call unipolar depression, where somebody just has depressive episodes, or is this a person whose depression is due to a bipolar disorder? And um, 
I'm, I apologize if, I, if I'm not being clear enough about this, but there, there are two types, another way of saying it, there are two types of medically significant depression. Depre the more common is major depression or unipolar depression where people, they either have normal mood or they have certain degrees of depression. They never have what we call hypomania or mania. Now, okay, so the other type of depression, which is less common but is still very common, are people who, in addition to periods of depressed mood um, and periods of normal mood, have times when their mood is either elevated or irritable or their energy is high or their thoughts are racing. Um, and and if even if those periods are last for short periods of time, uh, the the available evidence we have suggests that if you have depression without that kind of symptomatology, you you're treated one way. If you have depression with that type of symptomatology, you really need to be treated in a totally different way. Cool. How hard is to to diagnose somebody with bipolar disorder? Because I was also reading some information that it says bipolar disorder affects 5.7 million adults, American adults, which is a 2.6% of the U.S. population yeah. ages 18 and older. So it's yeah. So all right, I'll start, Mark, and then you can follow up. So. Um, mood disorders, which, which include major depression and bipolar disorder, are ridiculously common. These are common, common illnesses. Many people will have them. And um, even so, so people who have major depression without any type of manic symptoms are more common than people who have depression with some degree of manic symptoms, but those people are still really, really common. And unfortunately, I would say our medical system is not good at, there. our medical system's pretty good at picking up depression, but it is not good at picking up people who have depression due to bipolar disorder. Okay. And, and who is usually affected by this? What do you see in your practice usually uh, who's being affected? Because on some of the data that I read, it says it's usually uh, the median is around 25 years old. Yeah. So um, what I find, you know, Absolutely. in, in yeah. contrast to depression, when you look at the rates of bipolar disorder in multinational studies, the United States, France, Australia, China, it's all the same. So those numbers that you gave are more or less equivalent. And I think that really suggests that there is a, that there is a very reliable set of symptoms that we can see when people are manic. But there's not a group of people that are at increase globally, it is something we see uh, across the globe. 
What I think is probably uh, a compelling part of our work is that this tends to have an illness expression or onset in young life. Yes, we can see someone have a first episode of depression or mania, you know, in late life. It still is very responsive to treatment, but we're probably going to take a much closer look to see if there's another medical condition that might be driving some of those symptoms. But bipolar disorder can typically start in late adolescence, early adult life. When all these changes are happening, Miguel, right? So if you think about the first part of our discussion, lots of positive stress, lots of negative stress. Developmentally, things are changing um, with a lot of exciting chapters in one's life. But it's that stress that can actually increase the risk of having those episodes. Um, And we want to get in there early, right? We want to Identify those symptoms, get it treated, and really not disrupt a lot of other things in that person's life. So important to get in early. So I just want to add, Mark, is that one of the tragedies of mood disorders is is that they are early onset illnesses. Most mood disorders begin, you know, sometimes, but mostly in adolescence to early adulthood. Sometimes in childhood. Okay, sometimes after that. But most people with mood disorders have symptoms, you know, their whole, the most, the majority of their life. And so that's why it's so important to try to identify it. Um, what, what, what are some of the more high risk uh, the people who has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder experience? Or the ones who hasn't been diagnosed? What do at the um, risk? Um, let me start and then Mark can add. The, the fascinating thing about bipolar disorder and to a lesser extent major depressive disorder is that it is a genetic condition. It runs in families. Now, do we understand the mechanisms of that genetic transmission? No, it's not like, you know, how you inherit eye color. It's it's a comp it's a very complex um, genetic transmission. But if somebody so let's if somebody gets depression at a young age and their mom or dad has bipolar disorder, that the fact that there's that family history would suggest that even though the person maybe hasn't had a hypomanic or manic episode, this is the beginning of bipolar disorder. So. We really do pay really close attention to family history. And, and can you Perfect describe, Doctor, or you, Doctor Mark? Can you describe what is a maniac episode? A maniac for what do they experience? When so you say? it it can be there's some variability here, Miguel, between different people who have manic episodes. And I would also add that manic episodes can change in their presentation over time for that very same person. But I think the easiest way to think about this is someone who now is recognizing, I don't need eight hours of sleep. I'm doing just fine with two. And actually sleeping less, I feel invigorated. I feel energized. I have 
more creative thoughts. I have more drive to get more things done. Thoughts are really crowded, really going fast. I may look to be a bit more impulsive. It really is this elevation of mood and or energy that is signaling that is a manic episode. Now That could be so dangerous for someone's health. I was, I was just going to say that. Wow. It's really important when working crazy. with a new person to track how fast do these symptoms move. And we've had um, situations where someone can go from I'm feeling perfectly fine and be in the hospital severely ill in a matter of days. Um, so tr really following that course is important clinically. Okay. And, and so, it, what goes to? It gets, it gets back to this notion that the term depression or mood disorder, they're not good terms. I had a patient eloquently explain to me once how these, we should call these energy disorders. Because yeah. um, when you're, when you're, with depression, you're low energy, and people can often figure out their energy level before they figure out their mood. If you're manic, high energy, and then to make things further complicated, you can be manic and depressed at the same time. So, um, sorry, I threw, I threw that in there. Mark, okay, Mark, you go. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Doing great. I think, I think Miguel, the, the most important piece of this, um, I think clinically is really being very clear. Is this bipolar disorder or is this major depressive disorder? For example, major depressive disorder responds beautifully to antidepressants, psychotherapy, support. Bipolar depression does not. And in fact, we worry about using antidepressants in bipolar disorder for the fear that they might quickly flip someone's mood into a manic episode. The term mood stabilizers, those are the medicines we really focus on in bipolar disorder, and they're not Prozac type antidepressants. Now, I would contend that we know very we don't know as much about how to treat the depressive phase of bipolar disorder as in comparison to how much we know about treating major depressive disorder. And that's an area where I think we need to really invest some time because when we look at patients who live with bipolar disorder, we just were talking about one of those manic episodes. The reality is manic episodes are much, much shorter than depressive episodes. Depressive episodes can go on and on and have significant disability to them. So we, we feel that we need to put more effort in trying to better understand what that um, energy state, mood state looks like and how do we design better treatments for it. And, and talking about treatment and like you said, learning because it's a constant learning that we that we're doing. Do you guys have any project, anything going on related to learning more about someone's mental health, uh, mood disorders? Uh, any project going on currently? We we do, and 
again, um, really, it's been such a wonderful, productive, impactful working relationship with Sue and her team at the Lindner Center of Hope. But about 10 years ago, we made a decision together to build a biobank where patients with bipolar disorder were gracious enough to be partners in research and gave a sample of their blood to be stored for future studies. And part of that study in particular is, is looking at a new medication that is available for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. And we wanna look at those types of medications in the depressive phase of bipolar disorder. So we have a clinical trial that we're recruiting right now at Lindner and here in Mayo, Rochester. So lots of interest. Um, we really want to learn how to better treat this phase of the illness. I see. And, and someone who, who has been diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder uh, and they're being, being seen and treated, do they, their lifespan is, uh, prediction is the same as anybody else or, or do they uh, have a, a normal life or regular, can they go to work, you know, do your typical performance at work or how, how does that affect someone? It, one, they're being treated and, and yeah. hopefully in an early stage. So go ahead, Sue, yep. No, you go ahead, Mark. Okay. I was just going to say, Miguel, you hit two critical points, treated and early. And again, we just can't emphasize enough how important it is if loved ones, parents, friends see something's different about their friend. We really want to encourage people seek an evaluation with a therapist, their primary care provider, um, psychiatrist. Getting in early makes a difference. But I would say someone who's in treatment, um, you know, paying attention to potential life stressors, um, they're going to have a very productive life and do everything else that they've always wanted to do. Where, where we get concerned is when um, treatment is not um, an option for whatever reason, or that symptoms are becoming more resistant over time, that, that can be a very complicated, comp complicated condition where there's lots of other medical conditions that can join. Of course, we always worry about um, symptoms of suicidal thinking um, that are um, unfortunately something we have to, to look at every day with this illness. Yeah. So maybe let me, I just want to add something little like um, bipolar disorder is incredibly comorbid with other psychiatric disorders. And what I mean by that, if somebody has bipolar disorder, they almost always have other disorders, whether it's an anxiety disorder, a alcohol use disorder, ADHD, an eating disorder, et cetera, et cetera. The thing we know about psychiatric disorders is that the earlier you start the treatment, the better the prognosis. Um, and that, that, you know, mood disorders, ADHD, you know, 
eating disorder. You know, so it's like you want to identify the problem, get the person evaluated, and if they if there is a disorder, get treatment started as early as possible because that may help prevent um, the illness becoming um, uh, less, you know, more resistant yeah. to treatment yeah. or more severe. Or so, so the the trick with psychiatric disorders is that they they're they begin early and and we really need to start the treatment as early as possible. And um, I I actually I'm going to share here. Um, just give me a second. I'm gonna. Um, I was I found. Let me see, um, I'm trying to share with you guys. The, actually, the study that you guys are working on, so our friends can learn more about the, here is the information for, the, for your study, so people can learn about your study. They can go in this link. We're gonna put this in the information. You're gonna find this information in this link if you would like to learn more about this study about uh, bipolar research. I'm gonna be putting this information on the contact for this episode. But I, I would like to ask you, uh, does, on your stories, do you know or notice um, how someone's diet affects their mental health? Miguel, you're bringing up really great questions. I'll, I'll start and I'll have Sue finish up. Um, this is an area that we need to further study, but some of our early work um, has shown quite clearly that when people get depressed, their ability to maintain a healthy diet goes down. And that probably is really related to a a brain change where they're more focused on eating comfort foods or carbohydrates. But we know with depression, the ability to maintain a healthy diet goes down and the motivation for exercise um, goes down as well. So you can start to see depression, the illness itself changes our nutritional status, our, our exercise status, and that leads to a whole nother set of consequences I know Sue is going to address. Well, no, I, no, so no, I mean, this is actually something that Mark and I are really interested in the relationship of mood disorders, being overweight to having um, unhealthy eating habits. And um, I guess the only thing I'd like to add is that um, number one, exercise has antidepressant effects. So, you know, if somebody's really depressed, it may be hard to do it, but if they can get support and, you know, they will feel better. It, it, it's, it's, it's probably not an, it's not, it doesn't have the antidepressant properties that let's say an antidepressant does, but it's still antidepressant and it's good for your brain. So I like to tell people that, you know, if you have depression, you got to take care of your brain. And exercise is, is good for your brain. And the other thing is having a healthy diet. Um, this is um, a field in its infancy. Um, we know that 
when people get depressed, they can either stop eating or very commonly they eat too much. And there therefore is a very strong, close link between depression and obesity. So um, what do we, so when somebody has depression, what, so what do we recommend? You know, you want to, you want to get appropriate exercise. You may want to hire a trainer. And then the diet, what I like to tell people, and this is not research that our group has done. This is research that other groups have done. The diet at this point that has the best evidence for being helpful in depression is the Mediterranean diet. Um, this may change, but it's sort of like makes sense. You want to eat, you don't want to eat processed foods. You want to eat fruits, vegetables, nuts, um, you know, fish, yeah. a little bit of wine, not too much, but but there's actually some decent evidence that suggests that the Mediterranean diet is the best diet for people with depression. What, what about the connection with nature? Because I, I read some articles too related to research that they said uh, that going for a walk in nature also helps with your mental health status. Well, I would say I totally agree. I don't, know of any studies that compared going for a walk in the city versus going for a walk in nature, but, um, you know, going for a walk, w walking, walking is awesome. It's great exercise and it's cheap. You don't have to buy any yeah. fancy equipment and you can walk wherever you want. So if you want to walk in nature, great. So hey, one more question. Good. And that's maybe we, that segments into meditation. Um, and that's, I, you know, I, I don't think meditation is a treatment in and of itself for major, for a major mood disorder, but it can be extremely helpful. You want to learn how to be mindful, how to relax your mind, how to focus on appropriate things and ignore all this stupid stuff. So, um, so, so lifestyle interventions for mood disorders are crucial. And that means, you know, getting enough exercise, having a healthy diet, taking care of yourself. And so when I say taking care of yourself, it's like, you know, practicing mindfulness. Um, don't beat up on yourself. You know, don't expect too much of yourself. So the, I, um, those strategies are crucial as well. I was going to ask you, um, Related to health disparities, disparities related to being diagnosed, do you know where is, uh, who is the more affected? I know there is women, women uh, and also some minority uh, communities of color. Uh, there's some disproportion on, on either being diagnosed or access to mental health, either because in our communities, and I think this is across the board when it comes down to mental health, the stigma to be, to talk about mental health within our family group or, or community to be like, like Dr. Fry mentioned at the beginning, you know, to, as a man say, I'm dealing with depression, uh, the acceptance that brings 
push us back to disparities because what uh, those groups, okay. what, what have you seen? I'm going to do a brief practice? start and then let Dr. Fry take over because this is his area of expertise. So stigma when it comes to mental illness is still an enormous problem. It's just enormous. Um, people still don't understand that it's a medical illness. Um, and there are interesting, like, you know, like women are more likely to get help for depression than men. And then there are interesting things when it comes to race. Um, we think mental illness is just as common, let's say in African-Americans as Caucasians, but we feel that um, the, the stigma or you know, the concerns about mental illness may be greater among African-Americans. I'm just, okay, you take over, Mark. No, I would agree. And I, I think um, this is something our our group is um, paid attention to because we've started to recognize that bipolar patients of African ancestry may have a different journey to how they get diagnosed or how they get treated in this country. Now, I think we feel that it's important to study this from as many different vantage points as possible. And, and the first one is really looking at, well, what are the symptoms of the illness? Um, how are they presenting? How are they interpreted from the clinicians who are seeing um, the, the patient and working with them? We are approaching this to really say, is there something different about the illness and I, I would say that I suspect that that is not the case. It's really more when the illness might come to the attention of a provider or how that illness is being interpreted. But one of the data points that I find most distressing is, is recognizing that bipolar patients of African ancestry use lithium less. Now, lithium is a gold standard treatment for bipolar disorder. It is a major medical miracle. It has been incredibly helpful and has saved lives of millions of people. To see that a group of bipolar patients has less access or is using that drug less as a clinician really concerns me. And our group now with Sue and, and our couple colleagues trying to better understand what that's about. And I think it's not gonna be an easy question to answer. I think there may be variables related to uh, a patient's perception of what lithium is, or perhaps a provider's perception of lithium or how someone can get to uh, a lab for a lithium level. But we are starting to recognize these disparities, Miguel, and feel it's important to have all bipolar treatments available to all people who um, are interested in those. So more, more to tell. Maybe we can have this conversation a year. Yes, and, and, and I think, like like you mentioned, it comes down to, unfortunately, on some communities, it comes down to access, but also if uh, comes down to access, but also if we don't find out about studies, you know. And, and having this conversation and bringing these stories to the public awareness to participate because it then will be a representation that somebody like me in, in those treatments down in the future and, or, or, or probably if I need it. But uh, I guess uh, having these opportunities and like you said, Doc, 
uh, having the conversation and, 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 and try to remove that stigma among our communities of color and everybody because mental health uh, is, is a difficult conversation to have. And uh, I would like, I, I want to make you an invitation here publicly, publicly to come back again and, and continue this conversation. So, and, and give us updates on the study or when you finish with the study to, to share with everybody the, the results, the, the, and things, lessons learned from your studies. Anything else that you guys want to share today? Well, I would just say thank you for letting us participate in this community conversation. Um, we need to do more of this. It's, it's really about getting into the community to start that conversation as opposed to starting that conversation in the clinic, right? Um, so right. thank you for your efforts. Very good. Look forward to doing this again. Yeah, we should do one more. We can do another episode where we can talk about the impact of quality of life for somebody who hasn't been diagnosed versus somebody who hasn't been diagnosed for whatever reason it is and how impactful, like you mentioned, Dr. Susan, the the importance of being uh, diagnosed early. Right, right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, mean, I, th I think we should be t teaching uh, mental health, mindfulness, psychological techniques to kindergartners. I mean, that's just what I think. Yeah, That's they do. Personal in opinion, there may be no basis for that. So. No, here in Rochester, Minnesota, the school district has some uh, students liaison, and they work with some students who are, uh, unfortunately, they're having difficult uh, at the classroom, but then they work with these liaisons, and they teach uh, some breathing techniques. They teach some um, meditation. I was part of one of those groups. Good. Okay. Great. And I yeah. was so happy I learned just the techniques that they were using with the kids like, and everybody can, we can use those things and it was amazing you can see the change on the kids excellent so really great well I, I want to invite everybody to please share this podcast with your friends and family and if you have something that you want to share with the community please reach out put it you can find us on Twitter, on the Community Board Podcast, on Facebook, on the Community Board Podcast, here in this Facebook page from Mayo Clinic, uh, Center for Health Equity and Community Engagement, or iTunes on the Community Board. Share this podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, dogs, and have a good rest of the week. Okay. Thank you so Thanks, much. Miguel.